Forget frequently asked questions. Common sense. Common knowledge. Or Google. How about advice from a real genius? 95% of people in any profession are good enough to be qualified and licensed. 5% go above and beyond. They become very good at what they do. But only 0.1% are real geniuses. Richard Jacobs has made it his life's mission to find them for you. He hunts down and interviews geniuses in every field. Sleep science, cancer, stem cells, ketogenic diets, and more. Here come the geniuses. This is the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Finding Genius Podcast. My guest today is Paul Garner. He's a full-time researcher and lecturer for the Biblical Creation Trust. We're going to talk about the Coconino Sandstone, the flood, Noah's flood, radioisotope isotope data, etc. So it's going to be a lot of geological data for young Earth, possibly versus old Earth creationism. So welcome, Paul. Thank you for coming. Oh, well, it's great to be with you, Rich. Well, tell me a bit about your background and how you started working with the Biblical Creation Trust, and then we'll, we'll talk about your work today. Yeah, sure. I'm a researcher and lecturer with Biblical Creation Trust, which is a small creationist organization based here in the UK. One of our distinctives is our focus on research. We're involved in promoting and supporting research that contributes positively to the development of the young earth creationist model of, of origins. And I think in many ways we sort of serve as an interface between the creationist research community and the church, the the average person in the pew, if you like, by uh, popularizing and, and promoting the kind of research that's going on at the, the more academic or technical level. My, my own background is is in the natural sciences. My my master's uh, degree was in geoscience uh, with a paleobiology emphasis at University College London. And for my thesis research, I, I looked at patterns and rates of diversification within the dinosaurs so that that's my sort of background and since then i've i've sort of written a couple i've got a couple of books the new creationism which came out in 2009 published by evangelical press and uh, i'm also the author of fossils and the flood which was published in 2021 well let's focus in on you know the flood and the fossils can we see from the fossil record you know the stages of the flood and what was laid down first and why and what was laid down last etc. Why, why do uh, secular geologists say like, oh, you have the Cambrian layer, you have this layer, and this one's millions of years before that one, etc. Like what, you know, how did they determine the age based on the placement of fossils? And then from a creationist perspective, how is it different? Sure. There's definitely a consistent order to the fossil record. So uh, maybe it would sort of help just to explain what that order looks like. So the main fossil bearing portion of the, the rock record has three major subdivisions. We call them the Paleozoic, the Mesozoic, and the Cenozoic. The Paleozoic is the oldest, and in those rocks we find fossils of lots of marine um, invertebrates, things like brachiopods and trilobites and so on. We also find many different types of fishes. Towards the top of the Paleozoic, there are some amphibians and reptiles and some more sort of terrestrial type animals. And then in the Mesozoic, that's the portion of the fossil record where we find dinosaur fossils, along with a whole load of other reptiles, mosasaurs, ichthyosaurs in in the sort of marine Mesozoic, along with invertebrates like ammonites. And then you've got pterosaurs that, you know, were flying reptiles. And then in the Cenozoic, which is the uppermost part of that portion of the, the record, 
we get many more modern groups, more familiar groups, uh, groups of modern birds and, and mammals and, and so on. Uh, so we've, we've got that, that sort of major subdivision. The Cambrian, which you mentioned, is right at the base of the Paleozoic. So that's kind of the first system in, in the Paleozoic. So there is a consistent order. It's simply really a matter of geometry. You can go out into the field and you can look at which rock layers uh, sit on top of other rock layers and you can sort of puzzle out the sequence. Uh, you can correlate rock layers um, between different areas, between different regions. So we know there's a consistent series of rock layers with a consistent sequence of fossils. The question really is is what what does that sequence mean? And that's where creationists and evolutionists differ. So evolutionists think that these rock layers were formed over a very long time span, over hundreds of millions of years. So the Cambrian is dated to about 540 million years ago in the conventional model. And so they see the fossils in these rock layers as representing uh, the life forms that had that were evolving at that particular time in earth history when those those rocks were being deposited from a creationist perspective we see these rocks as having formed over much shorter periods of time. Much of that fossil-bearing sequence of rock layers we think was formed during the flood. And so we would see these different geological layers with their particular characteristic sets of fossils as representing different ecosystems that were present in the pre-flood world, which were then successively inundated and buried during the flood. So they were animals that were certainly in the Paleozoic and Mesozoic. They were animals that were living in the pre-flood world and were overwhelmed during the catastrophe. And then in the Cenozoic, I, I suspect that the Cenozoic is basically post-flood. So what we're seeing, I think, in the Cenozoic rock layers is the recovery of the world and the repopulation of the world, you know, with the animals coming from the ark and sort of repopulating the world as it as it recovered after the flood. Um, yeah, one question I've heard is why are there no human fossils? You know, if you look at the whole fossil record associated with the flood. And let's say you assign percentages to the types of stuff that is found. Are there any human remains? And uh, what are the predominant remains that are found? We'll, we'll get into that now. Well, we do have uh, human fossils, but they're all found right at the top of the Cenozoic. So in those very sort of youngest sediments, and they're found in particular contexts. So they're found in things like cave sediments or um, superficial lake sediments and things like that. So we do have some human fossils, but they appear to be in those post-flood sediments. So we don't have any human fossils in the rocks that most creationists would attribute to the flood. And so Obviously, you know, the question that gets asked is, is why is that? Why, why are the humans missing? I think we can look at that as a kind of broader question, really, because if we're right that the end of the flood is, uh, as I think it is, somewhere around the end of the Mesozoic, which is about where the dinosaurs sort of disappear from the, the fossil record, not only do we not have human fossils in the flood layers, but we also don't really have many uh, mammals. Certainly, most of the modern groups of mammals are missing and um, most of the birds are missing most of the flowering plants are missing so we have a whole whole assemblage of creatures that we we have in the present world that seem to be absent from those flood layers and when you look at that when you look at you know birds mammals flowering plants humans that looks like a coherent ecosystem or biome so 
I suspect that for some reason, and we're not entirely sure why, uh, during the flood, that whole biome, that whole ecosystem that was dominated by the humans living alongside mammals and birds and so on, that whole biome was was preferentially destroyed. It wasn't preserved in the flood rocks like some of the other biomes. And I think we can speculate about why that might have been the case. It could have been that, that that particular biome was located perhaps near one of the fountains of the Great Deep that Genesis chapter 7 and verse 11 tells us broke up at the beginning of the flood. So maybe they were sort of sitting on top of one of those fountains and got got destroyed. Maybe even something really crazy happened like, you know, the piece of crust that these humans were living on gets kind of sucked down a subduction zone during catastrophic plate tectonics. Maybe something really wild like that happened. But for whatever reason, and, and that's all a bit speculative, we do seem to have this entire sort of missing biome. And I what, think... What, what do we have and why? Like, what did make yeah. it into fossilized form and why when you look at it? Yeah, so so what did make it into the fossil record during the flood is basically the animals and plants that we find in those Paleozoic and Mesozoic rock layers. So we have, um, in the Paleozoic, it's predominantly marine. Even some of the stuff towards the top of the Paleozoic that looks a bit more terrestrial may actually have been part of a floating forest ecosystem that was actually floating over the ocean. So so most of the Paleozoic is marine. So we have, we have essentially the marine realm of the pre-flood world preserved. And then I think we have the dinosaur and reptile dominated biomes that were on the land. Uh, those are in the Mesozoic rocks. And those are the ecosystems that basically are preserved in the flood rocks. Okay. Are there any marine biomes that appear to be missing, you know, in the fossil record? Was there the sudden... So same thing with creatures on land. Was there a sudden appearance of different marine life forms after the flood? Or is that more consistent than the land-based life forms? There is a change in the marine faunas that we find as we go up through the fossil record. So if you look at the Paleozoic, those marine faunas are quite different from modern faunas. So we don't have any trilobites today. They were dominated by brachiopods, whereas today um, brachiopods are, you know, a relatively small proportion of the, the marine invertebrates. We have bivalve-dominated uh, marine sort of ecosystems today. So yeah, there's definitely a change, and I think that reflects different types of marine environment that were present in the pre-flood world, um, some of them radically different from ecosystems that are around today. Many of the ecosystems that I think were present in the pre-flood world never really recovered after the flood. They were destroyed during the flood and, and never really got going again after the flood. And so what we have today are kind of remnants of ecosystems that were once much more extensive and much more diverse. Before we continue. I've been personally funding the Finding Genius podcast for four and a half years now, which has led to 2,700 plus interviews of clinicians, researchers, scientists, CEOs, and other amazing people who are working to advance science and improve our lives and our world. Even though this podcast gets 100,000 plus downloads a month, we need your help to reach hundreds of thousands more worldwide. Please visit FindingGeniusPodcast.com and click on Support Us. We have three levels of membership from $10 to $49 a month, including perks such as the ability to see ahead in our interview calendar and ask questions of upcoming guests, transcripts of podcasts you're interested in, the ability to request specific topics or guests, and more. Visit FindingGeniusPodcast.com and click support us today. Now back to the show. So again, if you compare the marine biomes and biota versus the land-based ones, is the change as dramatic? Is it far less dramatic? 
Hey, what is that? If you lay them both side by side before the after, what does that tell you? You're looking at two different sets of biomes. Uh, yeah, the the changes in the marine realm are every bit as radical, I think, as the the changes in the uh, terrestrial biomes. So. If, if you look at the marine biomes that we have preserved in the Paleozoic, they're radically different to the marine biomes that we have in the world today. Same with the Mesozoic. I mean, the Mesozoic marine biomes are dominated by things like ammonites and a whole variety of other types of cephalopods that we, you know, are extinct today. And you also have marine vertebrates that we don't have today living in those Mesozoic oceans. So you've got things like mosasaurs and ichthyosaurs and, and plesiosaurs. So, you know, all of those organisms are, are now extinct. So there are really radically uh, radical changes and big extinction events that have affected the marine realm as well as the terrestrial realm. What do you think it was like if, if you know, we can create a, a simulation of this, like a VR simulation? I don't know if anyone's done it, but what would it have been like if a marine creature versus a land-based creature, you know, as the flood starts and as it progresses, what would what would someone experience? You know, yeah, if I was a ichthyosaur or something, or if I was a, you know, a small ammonite versus yeah. again, a large or a small uh, land creature. Yeah, it's it's quite hard to answer that question because we're we're still trying to sort of puzzle out exactly how the pre-flood world was was organized and arranged. Um, the continents were not in the same places as today. You know, they've they've been rearranged through plate tectonics. So it's quite difficult to sort of even go back and sort of reconstruct how the continents were arranged just before the flood. And then, of course, you know, how were those biomes organized? How were they arranged? Um, where were the animals living? I suspect that many of those Mesozoic marine faunas were sort of inland seas that were somehow sort of alongside the, um, the, the, the terrestrial Mesozoic reptiles because we find them preserved together in in the rocks the paleozoic marine realm has got to be somewhere else because you know again that's different again so it's quite hard to sort of in effect what we have to do is we have to look at the fossil record and the order that we find in the fossil record and then work backwards from that to kind of try to puzzle out what was the biogeographic structure of the pre-flood world and that's that's quite difficult to do it looks as if the flood began in the oceans. The Bible talks about the breaking up of the fountains of the great deep, and many creationists have associated that with catastrophic plate tectonics, the kind of breaking apart of the continents and the uh, spreading that happened at the mid-ocean ridges that then caused massive sort of supersonic jets of steam as that new hot rock welling up along the mid-ocean ridges contacted with the ocean water and sort of flashed a steam. So, so it was it was a catastrophic event that seems to have begun in the oceans, and then that caused uh, the shallowing of the ocean basins um, through the sort of thermal expansion of the new ocean floor, and that caused sea level to rise. And as sea level rose, the the floodwaters um, encroached onto the land and began to sort of overwhelm the biomes that were existed that had existed on the land before the flood. So it was a transgressive event. Was there rain? During the flood, you believe? I mean, before the flood, I guess, supposedly there was never any rain. What about during the flood? I think there was rain before the flood as well. Um, I think uh, some people have uh, 
sort of talked about, you know, there was no rain yet on the earth. But I think that's referring specifically to the time sort of before man is created and, and placed in the garden to, to till and to keep it. So I, I think there was there was rain. There were seasonal variations. In fact, we have we have fossil trees in flood deposits that show evidence of, you know, seasonal variations and so on. So uh, so I think that was going on before the flood. At the time of the flood, there was a very intense global rain that fell for for 40 days and nights and that could well have been related to the breaking up of the fountains of the great deep because one of the things that in the computer simulations that have been done by scientists like John Baumgardner you get these supersonic sort of steam jets where you get lots of ocean water entrained in those steam jets and that water is propelled high into the upper atmosphere and then of course it falls as a very intense global rain so yeah so there was a huge amount of rain associated with the flood and then after the flood actually there was also the immediate post-flood world was very wet I, I suspect because all of that catastrophic geological activity warmed up the ocean so the oceans after the flood were quite warm compared to today. And as you, when you get warm oceans, you get lots of evaporation from the surface of the oceans that pump lots of moisture into the atmosphere. And so the immediate sort of climate after the flood was very, was warm and very wet. So lots of rain. Yeah. So I know you said it's hard to picture, but again, imagine you're a sea creature and the flood starts happening. Would you be, uh, even in the water, would you be killed, boiled alive or... It would all the oxygen leave the water and, you know, again, you die that way. Like, what, what do you think happened to the marine creatures? When did they die? Or did they yeah. persist? And what happened? Oh, that's a, that's a very good question. So I think, you know, people often think of the flood as mainly sort of affecting the animals that were on the land. You know, they obviously drowned. But actually, much of the marine realm was, was completely devastated by the flood. And when we look at the fossil record, obviously much of the fossil record, the, the vast proportion of the fossil animals that we find are marine animals. So there was huge destruction in the ocean realm. And that could have happened in a variety of ways. Uh, obviously, there was rapid sedimentation that could have buried lots of animals very, very quickly, captured them in sort of catastrophic debris flows and that that kind of thing but there were also chemical changes in the water and you know very strange chemistry probably resulted in the deaths of, of large numbers of marine animals the temperature was changing there were probably lots of temperature changes so there were all kinds of things going on in the marine realm that meant that much of the marine life died as well and uh, and of course we we see that in the in the sense that many of the animals the marine animals that we see in the fossil record have also become extinct. You know, we we don't have trilobites, we don't have ammonites, we don't have plesiosaurs and ichthyosaurs and so on. So, so yeah, huge devastation in both the ocean and the terrestrial realms. Well, what would it have been like for, um, you know, an animal on land or a person? It rains, it rains, it rains, it rains. Oh, no, it's not stopping. Things are really starting to flood. What What do creatures and people do? Again, it's a very good question. It's I think I think we're we're sort of having to go into the realm of speculation here. I think immediately there would have been a devastation on the land, even before the floodwaters actually encroached and and reached the point where you were. If the continents are breaking apart, as we think that they did at the time of the flood, you would get massive earthquakes that would be devastating the continents. You would have 
huge amounts of rain. You'd have uh, sediments being washed down into into lowland areas, and you would have all kinds of geological activity going on, even before the point at which the floodwaters actually rise and reach your location. So I suspect lots of animals died, you know, even before the floodwaters got to the place where they were living. And then, of course, we see lots of evidence in the Mesozoic rocks, which I think represent some terrestrial ecosystems dominated by dinosaurs and other reptiles. We see lots of evidence in those rocks of catastrophic volcanic activity, huge uh, earthquakes. We see evidence of catastrophic underwater flows that have picked up entire herds of dinosaurs and and sort of buried them catastrophically in, in fossil graveyards. So yeah, it was it was an incredibly devastating event, I think beyond anything almost that we can imagine. Are there are certain sea creatures that would be very robust compared to other ones, and you'd expect to find them in the fossil record? And are there ones that were so delicate that you unexpectedly find them, but you normally wouldn't expect to find them? That's a, that's a good question. I, I suspect some of the organisms that probably thrived in the floodwaters, at least at certain times, might have been some of the microorganisms. When you look in the fossil record, we, we find that... There are large quantities of uh, sediments like limestones and uh, other carbonates and chalk and things like this, which are largely composed probably of uh, organically produced uh, carbonate material, much of it produced by sort of microorganisms. So the chalk, for example, is uh, largely composed of the, the fossil shells of these tiny sort of planktonic algae called coccoliths. They build little calcium carbonate shells and they sort of secrete those shells, shed those shells, and they, they accumulate um, to form chalk. And vast quantities, I mean, billions and billions of of these organisms are required to produce the thick beds of chalk that we have. I suspect what was happening there is that during the flood, the conditions in the water column were just right for some of these tiny organisms to just bloom and proliferate. And so they literally sort of turned, would have turned the water milky white and just formed these incredible sort of global planktonic blooms that then were deposited to form uh, the chalks and the limestones and you know, and other organisms may be forming black shales. And so I think it was devastating for a lot of organisms, but for things like some of the microorganisms, maybe they kind of thrived in the water. And that's why we have some of these very unique rock types in the rock record. Hmm. What in the fossil record or in, um, you know, in what we see today doesn't make sense? Or does it all make sense you know, in the more you consider it? Like what's... Um... What outstanding features or elements or presence or absence of fossils or things like that really like puzzles you and other people that are studying this? Sure, that that's another good question. So uh, we've already mentioned one, which is obviously the the absence of uh, humans, most mammals, most birds. That's a that's a puzzle, and you know, we don't have a, a full answer to that. Um, one of the other things that I think you know we're we're still sort of trying to figure out is exactly how we produce the the particular order of the fossil record. So I think we we have a kind of first order explanation for why the fossils are found in the order that they are. Um, it makes sense that the Paleozoic is the marine realm, the Mesozoic is the terrestrial realm, and I think we have some particular explanations. For example, the fossil plants in the Paleozoic in terms of a floating forest model, which kind of makes sense. But there's an awful lot that we don't understand about how the flood deposited organisms 
in the particular order because some fossils have very narrow stratigraphic ranges. So you, you find them only through a relatively small thickness, if you like, of the fossil record and nowhere else. And, you know, it's quite hard to sort of understand how the flood could have produced such uh, strict yeah. fossil zonation. So I why think that's one of Why is there layering, layering at all? Are there fossils that appear throughout all the layers or is it is each layer segmented and you don't see what's in one layer and in the next one? Yeah, the fossil fossils are definitely zoned. So most fossils you don't extend through the, the whole of the layers. I'm trying to think, uh, you know, if there are any fossils that extend, you know, uh, completely unchanged through, through all the layers. But most of them are restricted to particular horizons or particular parts of the record. Some have longer stratigraphic ranges than others. Some are shorter, some are longer. But what about the borders? Are they clean cuts? Like, you'll see fossil group A that all of a sudden, you know, within that, in, an inch, then no more of them and it's totally different or yeah, absolutely. I mean, that, that, that certainly happens. So, uh, you know, the classic example, of course, is the, are the dinosaurs. So we have dinosaurs in the record from the upper Triassic right through the succeeding layers, right up to the top of the Cretaceous. And then at the top of the Cretaceous, bam, they've gone. We maybe have a few sort of reworked dinosaur bones in the earliest um, Cenozoic rocks, but that they're just bones that have or teeth that have been sort of reworked out of the Cretaceous rocks and included in the younger rocks. But in terms of articulated dinosaur skeletons, they, they just disappear at the end of the Cretaceous. And it and it's very sudden, you know, there they are in the rock record below uh, what we call the Cretaceous Paleogene boundary, the KPG boundary, and above that boundary, we don't find dinosaurs. They've gone. And we see similar sort of patterns elsewhere in the record with other organisms too. If things were in a, you know, in a, well, not in a liquid state, but, you know, immersed in liquid, churned and moved. I mean, how much how much would the density of the different fossils and everything play a role, especially in an aqueous environment? Would density have, a, like, a very, very strong role, so therefore that would have segmented fossils in a, in a certain way? It certainly would have played a role. Um, so the hydrodynamic sort of qualities of uh, particular fossils and shells and so on, you know, that certainly would have would have played a part. But I don't think it's a it, it can't explain the fossil zonation that we see because we find organisms that you you would expect would have very similar hydrodynamic qualities, and yet they're actually found in very different parts of the geological record. So I don't I don't think that explains everything. I think. The way to think about it is that it's it's mostly, I think, an ecological sequence. It's telling us something about the ecological structure of the pre-flood world. But then the question is, how does that ecological structure in the pre-flood world get preserved through the flood? And I think we have to envisage sedimentary processes in the flood that are picking up entire ecosystems, entire biomes of organisms, and actually transporting them en masse, keep it, organisms that were living together in the pre-flood world are somehow being transported together as an assemblage and then deposited together. And that also may be telling us something about the nature of the sedimentary processes that are happening during the flood. So it's not the kind of turbulent deposition in the sense that, you know, organisms from different ecosystems are being completely churned and mixed up and then deposited together. We're seeing what look like very coherent ecosystems being preserved in the flood rocks. Yeah. Okay, so that, would that explain why there's a sudden change in the layers? You, you you carry an ecosystem en mass. Once it's moved and deposited, then there's no more of it. So there's a sudden drop off in that kind of material. And now it's replaced with something else. 
Yes, I think I think that's exactly right. Of course, you know, we still have to puzzle out some of the details of that and work out exactly what's what's going on. But I think you're absolutely right that you're seeing ecosystems buried. And then, of course, once that ecosystem is buried and other material is being deposited with including organisms, you know, from another ecosystem, then you get this kind of abrupt change in the fossil record where suddenly the organisms are different. And I think that's what's happening. I think I think it's the flood is preserving that ecological zonation from the pre-flood world, which is good in a way because it helps us then to sort of work backwards and work out what that biogeographic structure of the pre-flood world would have been like. Is there a big variation worldwide in the composition of the different layers? Uh, There are consistent patterns. So, you know, if you, wherever you look at the Mesozoic, you'll find ammonites and you'll you'll find dinosaurs. And wherever you look in the world at the Paleozoic, you'll find trilobites and brachiopods. But the specific makeup of those faunas is sometimes different. So if you look at the kinds of trilobites that, let's say, you have in North America, and you compare them to the kinds of trilobites that we have over here in Europe, they will actually be different. There are kind of different provinces. And that also is telling us something about, you know, those those biogeographic provinces and how they were deposited, and also about plate tectonics. Uh, you know, maybe these these faunas were were separated at one time, you know, by an ocean, just as they are today, and that's why you're seeing different faunas in North America than you are in in Europe. And the same the same in the Mesozoic. You know, there there are certain dinosaurs that you'll find in Africa, and they're different to the dinosaurs that you find in North America. There are some commonalities, some some things that they share in common, but they're often the specific makeup of those assemblages of fossils will be a bit different. And so there is this kind of geographic provincialism as well. What are the great mysteries of the flood to you, even after you've studied it for so long and in so many ways? What really puzzles you? I think the big one for me is one that we've already talked about, which is fossil zonation. And I think we've begun to make some progress in understanding fossil zonation, but I think there's an awful lot more to do. I think we're only at the beginning of that process. So that's still, for me, I think one of the biggest areas that we need to do some work in. One of the other areas I suppose I could could mention concerns what appear to be fossils in situ faunas. So things like fossil reefs, There, there are places in the rock record where you have things that look like coral reefs or other kinds of reefs and in the conventional model they're interpreted as structures that grew there in the place where we find them today i think from a flood perspective these fossils have to be transported that they can't have sort of grown there over a long period of time and i think there's uh, when we look at some of these reef structures we see evidence that maybe they're not really true reefs but again that's um you know, I'm talking in generalities there, and there's an awful lot of work to be done to look at specific examples and try to puzzle out what's going on there. But yeah, those are two big ones, fossil zonation and in situ structures in the fossil record. Again, what about the absence of uh, any human fossils? Why Why do you think that is? Yeah, again, you know, that's a, that's a puzzle I suspect, and this is only my sort of you know, wild speculation is that probably the continent, the microcontinent, whatever it was where the humans were living, actually got taken down a subduction zone and completely destroyed in the interior of the earth. I, I suspect that could be what happened, but that's um, that's my speculation. And I, I'm not sure how I can test it, how, how I can actually, you know, make that into a kind of working model that could be that could be amenable to scientific testing, but I think something quite radical has got to have happened so that that biome isn't preserved. 
Well, what about if you compare the pattern and distribution and relative frequency of marine animals in the fossil record in various layers versus land animals? If you lay those two side by side, what differences do you see and what does that tell you? I know I've kind of asked this before, but maybe in a slightly different way. Unpack that for me a bit. I'm not quite sure. Well, like, like okay, what? You're looking at the other question. Yeah, if you look at the marine animal distribution and prevalence of the different animals and all that in the fossil record, you know, in the flood times, that has a certain patterning, like you said. Yeah. But if you compare that to the patterning of what land animals look like in the fossil record, you know, at the same time, how different is that? And if so, if there, if there is a big difference, what does that tell you? Uh, we see fossil zonation in both. We see it in both the the marine animals and in the terrestrial animals. So that's similar. We see big changes between the Paleozoic faunas and the Mesozoic faunas in both the marine and the terrestrial realms. So in many ways, that's kind of similar. I suspect, you know, when, when you look, for example, in the Mesozoic, you have marine ecosystems that are dominated by um, reptiles like mosasaurs and ichthyosaurs and ammonites. And you find those in the same rock layers, in, in the same age rock layers, as you find dinosaurs. So I think those marine and terrestrial faunas have got to be connected in some way. They're probably adjacent to one another in some sense in, in the pre-flood world. So there is, a, there is a, a connection, I think, between what we see in the terrestrial fossil record and what we see in the marine fossil record. There's a, there's a direct connection because where you find terrestrial deposits of Mesozoic age, you get dinosaurs. Where you find marine deposits of Mesozoic age, you get ammonites. Uh, you never find trilobites, for example. So there's got to be a, an ecological connection, I think, between, between those types of deposits. Can you tell how far something has traveled, you know, when it finally went to its final home, you know, and it fossilized? Is there any way to tell? That's a very good question. Sometimes uh, you can sort of do provenance studies and you can sort of work out where organisms might have you know, come from or how far they've been transported. And obviously some fossils have undergone abrasion or have been disarticulated and you can make some inferences perhaps about how long the organism has been dead or, you know, how long it's been undergoing transport. Uh, not always, though. There, there are, um, it depends partly on, on the mode of transport. So if you have uh, as laminar flow transporting fossils, then the fossils don't get abraded as much as, say, if they're entrained in a turbulent flow. So it's not always possible to tell the distance of transport purely from the the quality of preservation of the organism, because it, it does depend to a large extent on the nature of the transport process. Well, how do you establish provenance of fossils? What techniques are there? One way might be to look at paleocurrent uh, indicators in the sediments that the fossils are contained in. So you might find cross bedding or ripple marks or, or something like that that can tell you which direction the sediments were being transported in. And so you can sort of work backwards and you can say, well, you know, the, these fossils were probably transported from this direction or this this location because paleocurrent indicators tell us where the sediment containing those fossils has come from. So there are some kind Kind of sort of clues that you get in the sediments that you can use to work out those kinds of things. Okay. What major areas need to be figured out now about the flood? Like, what are some major things that need to be, again, figured out in order to corroborate the flood or disprove it? Well, you know, I think we have we have a flood model that I think gives us 
sort of the big picture. We have this model of catastrophic plate tectonics that I think gives us a, a mechanism for the flood. It helps to explain physically what was going on at the time of the flood. We have some some theories about you know how we can uh, reconstruct pre-flood environments. We we have lots of case studies of particular rock units, and you know one of them is the Coconino sandstone, which was one that I sort of worked on, and so we you know we have a we have some ideas about how the Coconino was deposited. So we have a kind of big picture and we have some more detailed sort of case studies, but there's such an enormous amount that we still don't know that still needs to be done. And we've already touched on lots of those things, you know, figuring out fossil zonation and figuring out exactly, you know, how particular rock units were deposited. There's just so much that could be done. And as a community, we're relatively small in number. The, the Young Earth Creationist community is quite small. And then among those, the, the ones who are actually actively involved in geological and paleontological research, you know, we're relatively small. And I'd love to see some more students getting involved and getting trained in uh, relevant disciplines so that they can contribute because there's really no shortage of research projects that students could be working on. So so lots and lots of unanswered questions and lots of really exciting things that could still be investigated. Excellent. Well, Paul, what's the best place for people to find out more about your work? Where can they go? They can visit our website. Um, Biblical Creation Trust is at uh, biblicalcreationtrust.org. I'm also co-host of a regular fortnightly podcast with Dr. Todd Wood, who's a biologist, uh, called Let's Talk Creation. And they can find that on YouTube or go to the Let's Talk Creation website at letstalkcreation.org. So those are probably the best places to, to find me. And uh, if people want to read more about all of these subjects, um, they can pick up a copy of my book, The New Creationism, or the new book, um, Fossils and the Flood, and dig into these subjects in more detail. Bryson, Paul, thank you so much for the great call and for coming on the podcast. It's been a really good time. I appreciate it. Okay. Thanks very much for your time, Rich. If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. You've been listening to the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. If you like what you hear, be sure to review and subscribe to the Finding Genius Podcast on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. And want to be smarter than everybody else? Become a premium member at FindingGeniusPodcast.com. This podcast is for information only. No advice of any kind is being given. Any action you take or don't take as a result of listening is your sole responsibility. Consult professionals when advice is needed.